together You're walking or riding A long open road With your best friend driving Share from the heart And we'll all start vibing Hey old friends Welcome to On Guiding On Guiding is a podcast Dedicated to open-minded And open-hearted communication By sharing stories Through the lens of how we guide And are guided By internal and external forces on Guiding aims to awaken or reacquaint us with the guiding spirit inside ourselves. On this episode of On Guiding, we're joined by Zach Fisher. Zach describes himself as a primitive technologist who specializes in survival skills and outdoor adventure. His love for guiding has led him to work and teach for many organizations across the U.S. And his unique blend of primitive skills, artistry, and musicianship makes encountering his offerings as a guide a truly holistic experience. I caught up with Zach while he was visiting his brother on the West Coast, and we began our conversation by talking about how he found his way to one of his most influential guiding relationships. Hi, Zach. Hey, Sam. How's it going? It's going pretty great. So yeah, tell me again where you are right now. I'm in Williams, Oregon, uh, just north of the California border, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And you're there visiting your brother. I'm there. I'm here visiting my younger brother. Yeah. Yeah. How many brothers are, is it just the two of you? How many siblings do you have? It's just the two of us. So how, how far apart in age are you guys? Uh, four and a half years. Four and a half years. Okay. So mm -hmm. did you, did you have, like, did you guys think up in, in high school at all? Or was he like a, an incoming freshman when you were an outgoing senior or did you guys miss each other? That we missed each other. Yeah. So he was in eighth grade when I was a senior. But, but you had already sort of paved the, the Fisher way. I, yeah, I had, he had, he had coming into some circles. He had, uh, you know, like, Oh, I know your brother. And so he was accepted. He had some previous clout. Nice. Um, and you guys went to school on the West coast. Yeah. Sebastopol, California. Nice. And you and I met, though, on the East Coast working for a company called Discover Outdoors, which is not around anymore. But, Rest in peace. But we, we met, I want to say, 2013 on the East Coast. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think I, I started guiding for another company, yeah, I think in about 2011, and I worked for them for two years, and then I moved over to discover outdoors and that's when yeah that's when i met the team i want to uh i want to stick to the, the the brotherhood uh thread for a second because one of the things that i want to ask you about um kind of right away is the tracker school and i think i remember um from one of our earlier conversations about it that your brother your younger brother is is the reason why you ended up there is that right that is correct. So he uh, hated all high school, uh, wanted to get his GED. And my dad said, yeah, go for it. But you have to have, you have to do something. You can't just be a townie. You can't just stick around, do nothing. Um, and so he, yeah, he found, he found the school. He read one of Tom's books, like, I think on the way out there, um, signed up for a class, you know, went out to New Jersey, took a class and he did that for about three three years, I believe. And he was going pretty hardcore at it. And I really watched a, a pretty awesome transition in his life, just a, like a focus, you know, like a focus of what he was doing. 
And, um, and so when I moved out to the East coast, he was like, Hey, you know, this school is two hours away from you. You should go check it out. And so I did. And he came and volunteered for my first class. And I, uh, yeah, I met a lot of people there that I'm still friends with and have really been kind of, uh, growing up in the primitive skills world with, yeah. So yeah, can you, can you just tell us more about the tracker school? Yeah, Tracker School was um, founded by a guy named Tom Brown Jr. Um, he is uh, a master tracker, uh, a master of just survival skills, primitive technology. Um, his school focuses a lot on um, on just survival in a in a more holistic way. I would say um, it's not just one of these schools that. Um, are, or like, you know, like the man versus wild kind of approach to things. It's very much um, not just teaching you the skills, but teaching you how to live with nature, live in harmony with it, to uh, expand your awareness, expand um, your existence, really. Um, and so it, for me, it was like a, a uh, an education that I had always been looking for, and I had never found in any kind of standardized education, you know, where I was learning about uh, myself along with these skills, along with um, just an understanding of nature and the, the, the role that human beings play in it. So it was just like this full approach, you know, he teaches like a, there's a philosophy side to the school and there's kind of like a hard skills side to the school and you do a little bit of both. And um, yeah, so it's just this very, uh, broadened perspective of uh, what we're doing here <laughs> and where we came from and, and uh, self-reliance and, and a whole list of other things. And so do you, I mean, do you know um, Tom Brown Jr.'s sort of backstory about how he came to operate this school and, and where you know, his, like, his lineage, so to speak, Sure. Yeah. His, his lineage, at least the way he tells the story, his lineage is, um, goes back to when he was seven years old and, um, his best friend's grandfather came into town and his, his best friend, Rick, um, his grandfather was a, <clears throat> a Lipan Apache, uh, elder who had spent his life just basically walking the Americas and learning from different people about, uh, all, you know, everything, everything um, that has to do with surviving in nature and, and really thriving in nature. So how they hunt and how they, uh, what their ceremonies are and, um, you know, the plants and the medicine and the X, Y, Z, on and on and on. So he's, he walked all over Central and South and, and North America, just learning from different people ended up in New Jersey of all places and, um, and took on these two young apprentices basically. So they were, I think he was about seven when he started studying seven or eight, when he started studying with, uh, he called him grandfather. They both called him grandfather. And that's kind of how he's referred to at the school as grandfather. Um, and he studied with him just hard nonstop for about 10 years until he was like 17, 18, something like that. And then grandfather passed and, and Rick passed. Uh, I think shortly thereafter. And so he was just on his own and um, he spent, and then he spent his, you know, his twenties and thirties kind of just wandering and 
um, putting himself through the, the rigors of learning how to live in the wild and, and really being wild. Um, and so, and he also, during that time, he was also, um, you know, he was a renowned tracker. So he was working with uh, all kinds of government agencies, um, finding lost and lost people and fugitives. So, yeah, he's been shot a number of times. He's been stabbed and hit with baseball bats and things like that because fugitives don't like to get caught. Um, and he's usually the first one there because he's reading the tracks, you know. Um, and and so he, when he started his school, I don't remember when this, I think the school's been around for 30-something years. Um, so when he started the school, it had a, a very strong um, focus on tracking, but it also, it encompassed everything, hence the tracker school, but it's not just tracking. He's a very passionate teacher. And that's always the type of teacher that I was able to learn from, you know, didn't really matter the subject. Um, I like to learn. I've, I just, my brain is hungry all the time. So um, I, I just need to keep feeding it information to keep it happy. Um, and I, I'm, but I'm not able to learn in really a classroom environment like a lot of kids, you know, working with kids. I see this a lot. Um, you know, it takes, I'm a kinetic learner. I have to like go and do it and move around. And then I also need a teacher who cares about what they're teaching. So, uh, you know, when I had a good English teacher, I, I got, you know, I got really good at writing. And when I had good music teachers, which I always had, I became a better musician and, um, and he is, yeah, he's just an incredibly passionate uh, and, and master. You know, he really is a master. And I've, I've seen him do things and I've heard all kinds of stories about um, kind of the, the way he teaches and, and what he's able to accomplish. And it's really, it's uh, really inspiring. But yeah, he's a maniac too. <laughs> Yeah, he's getting he's getting he's getting older and he's having some health issues. So he's kind of starting to s slow down and, and warm up to people a little more. But um, yeah, he can still he's still got a fire in the back of his eyes. How inspiring it is indeed to see the flame of the guiding spirit burning bright in one another. I wanted to hear about how Zach had internalized some of these external influences. So I asked him to share about his own guiding style and to speak to some internal forces that show up along the way. I find that uh, kind of a central focus for, for guiding, at, at least in, in my, my philosophy, is the goal is to get people to be able to guide themselves. You know, and, and so I'm, I kind of see myself more as um, somebody that introduces uh, a student or uh, whatever, whoever's in my life asking questions, uh, to guide them towards their own experience, you know, to introduce them to maybe a skill or an idea or uh, a ritual or anything. And, and to have them uh, experience that through their own lens and create their own relationship with it. So I, I really see myself more as a, um, yeah, kind of like a catalyst for, people learning about themselves or learning about nature or learning any of these skills. And um, so lately I've been doing a lot of workshops, um, a lot of uh, primitive 
kind of craft workshops. You know, I haven't really been guiding out, um, taking people out into the woods and having them spend the night or anything like that lately. I've doing, been doing that more for myself um, and just expanding my own skill set um, and really kind of just being led by my intuition um, and, uh, and then teaching workshops and trying to combine also uh, you know, I'm an artist as well, so I'm trying to combine the, the artistic and creative elements into the primitive skill stuff. So I'm doing a lot of uh, basket weaving and hide tanning and plant dye and um, uh, edible and medicinal plants and, and things like that. Things that, that really uh, uh, have, it kind of ignites the, the creative mind as well. It sounds to me kind of like, you know, holding space, like you said, for, for other people to, to find their own internal guide right. and, and then sort of like teaching uh, like a toolkit of, of things that might be helpful on their own journey. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it reminds me of, of something that we've talked about before um, that like is a sort of style of, of space holding and teaching um, that I try to practice myself. I think that you've called it like coyote teaching. That, yeah, that's, that's what it's called at the tracker school. That's kind of like Tom's thing. It's the wow. coyote teaching. Yeah. But yes, can, can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that works in, in, in your perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, Coyote teaching, at least the way I was introduced to it, is uh, a way of teaching people without them knowing that you're teaching them anything. <laughs> so you're, you know, and, and that can be a, a, a number of different techniques, but um, really what you're trying to do is engage that, that um, creative or that, that curiosity. You know, you're trying to engage the curiosity and trying to engage people's passion. And, um, really for me, I, I kind of just do it by leading the way of being like the example of being really passionate about what I do. And also very curious about, um, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's no way I will ever master all, or maybe even any of these skills that I do. And so I'm constantly curious about it. And I like to see people experiment. I encourage experiment in my classes. Uh, I encourage them to just like, play with it, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, I, I'm getting better at this, but, uh, you know, when they ask you a question, just don't give them all the information, give them as little as possible, just give them the minimum so that then they have to go figure it out on their own. It's that same kind of thing of like, um, they're curious about something I'm teaching about, uh, basketry and they want to know what plants are good for, basketry and I'm like oh these are the ones that I've worked with um this is my favorite and but I know that this 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 works and also like just go mess around like there's all kinds of vines um and and uh grasses and plants that have great material for basketry so just go experiment just go do it you know as soon as you uh give somebody an absolute answer then they stop thinking about it you know they're just like oh that's the answer don't have to do any more thinking about that um 
And so it's, it's really kind of trying to leave the door open so that they have to go figure it out themselves. And that's, uh, that's for me, that's kind of the essence of coyote teaching is, um, yeah, just leaving, leaving the door open. Don't, don't give them the full answer, you know, give them little snippets and make them figure it out themselves because that's really what it's about getting the dirt time in really putting in the effort to learn and, and go fail and, that's another big part of it is like allowing, and that's something I'm, I'm working on as well, is allowing my students to fail, even sometimes setting them up to fail, um, because that ignites that passion of like, oh man, I really wanted to get that friction fire, but I didn't. Um, and, you know, and I didn't, you know, I made myself step away and let them have that experience because that's part of the experience. That's part of the, my, of how I was taught these things. So, and it really does, for some people, it really does ignite that, that like, uh, that fire. It's a skill, um, to be able to, um, hold that failure and, and to, to, to create a space where people feel, um, safe to fail in front of you and with you. Yeah. You know? not fear fail to, yeah, to not fear failure because, as soon as you start to fear failure, you, you're limiting yourself, right? And you're, uh, you're keeping yourself from the experience of, like, it's okay. It's okay to, to fail. You learn from it and you move on. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that's universal. That is universal. Everybody fails and everybody has a hard time with it. And, at the, you know, especially depending the context and, uh, and it's okay. It's like creating that, like, it's okay to fail um, type of experience, I think is really invaluable, especially when you're, when I'm teaching kids, you know, and the kids fail and you can see them like start to kind of close up and you're like, no, 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 it's all good. Let's try it again. <laughs> it's really interesting to try to strike this balance where there are some stakes, right? Um, but, but the stakes are not too high to make right. you know, failure like right. life-threatening. Right. It's a controlled environment for failure is what you're doing. You're creating a controlled environment for failure. It's so that, yeah, you're, there, you're not like out in the freezing rain with no shelter because you don't know how to build a shelter because you picked the wrong material. Um, it's, you just have to shrug it off and, and do it again and try it again. Although I do, you know, one thing that is encouraged, um, is to pretend that it's real, to make it real, because that yields better results, but the consequences aren't as dire as it, they could be if you were trying to do a month-long survival trip out in the middle of nowhere, Adirondacks. Right. Well, I mean, and, and I think part of, of being able to create that environment is being able to first identify the group that you're working with and say, I think I can take this, this group out into a higher stakes scenario so they can thrive in it and learn from the failure or, you know, in this group, I wouldn't necessarily do that with. And, and the reason that I, I bring that up is one of the things that I flipping through my journal, looking for some topics to talk about with you. And, and one of them was meeting people where they're at. I did some writing and, and thinking about this. It was an eye-opening thing for me because at first I came at it and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to meet people where they're at. I'm not going to undercut them or over hype them. I'm just going to meet them where they're at. Right. Um, 
And, and then as I started to dig a little bit deeper into that, I was like, well, how, like, how much assuming am I doing yeah, right. In, in, in trying yeah, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, but it, it was a really, you know, I'd like to hear your, your perspective on perhaps some, some practices in learning how to do that well, um, you know, as well yeah. as you can. I mean, that just takes time. That just takes interaction with human beings of all sorts, which is, you know, I was a, let's see, I've been a guide now for eight years, something like that. And before that, and actually during the same time, I was a bartender. So it takes a lot of like being able to, to read people, uh, read their facial expressions, their tone of voice, their body language, you know, like all that kind of stuff matters so much. So you have to be really aware. And I remember when I first started guiding, um, you would kind of just go on the hike and things would come up and you'd deal with it. But the more and more I did it, guides of all sorts have their little tricks where they can they can be like oh let's see what this group is all about you know so like one of my tricks would be we get out of the van we get all uh suited up and i would just like take off down the trail you know and like and that would immediately tell me okay who is like what's their fitness level what's their motivation level how far of a spread if we do move quickly how far of a spread is going to open up between people that are moving a little slower and a little faster. And then when we meet up, you can kind of read their expression, how they felt about that and things, you know, those kinds of things. So meeting people where they are, um, yeah, you kind of got to, you got to prod at it a little bit. And one of my, another one of my tools is just humor, you know, making jokes is such a important part of guiding, keep the mood light, make people feel comfortable. And so I'll just, I'll joke with people and I'll prod at them a little bit just to see where they're at, just to see their state of mind. And, you know, if something, somebody's starting to get snippy, then I'm going to lay off and I'll, I'll just note that. And as far as like teaching skill level wise, you know, I guess it's all kind of the same. You're just, just a matter of time and, and observation, but it has to be pretty acute observation. And, um, and you, you know, while you're teaching, you're also paying attention to, what people are doing, who's interacting, what are they saying? It can be a very high level of awareness. The longer you guide, it just becomes more natural. And I think all, all the guides that I've worked with have that level of, you know, you can see somebody get onto one of the vans and you're like, I feel like, you know, that person is going to be, I feel like that person didn't bring enough water today. You know, something like that, you know? And a lot of it's very intuitive, one thing the tracker school hammers into you is the importance of trusting your instinct, trusting your intuition. So I've, especially over the last couple of years, I've really just been doing that and not letting my brain take over my logical brain take over too much. You know, it's got its job and your intuition has a different job and, and just learning how to trust that, you know, but that takes, you know, that takes time and experience. One of the things that I feel like shows up in my sphere of awareness um, is like where intuition sort of develops from or has its root structure. It's almost like it is a, like a, a radar that goes off. Like, okay, like this is activating something about my intuition. Um, you know, my, my first pass at it is that I need to be this um, you know, but maybe that's not 
the totality of what I need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's, it's sort of like a, a like a, an alarm or, or perhaps it could be an alarm to like look deeper into something. Yeah. I get, I get where you're going at here. So, I mean, uh, in a very basic sense, um, I mean, the root of intuition, I have no idea. <laughs> it's in our little reptilian brains in there. Um, you know, it has to do with survival. You know, it all, all things come down to survival in my world, um, of course. And so you, you think about, you know, the way our brains are developed, it's, it's to keep us alive. And, and so, you know, when you get, uh, you know, you get kids from Brooklyn uh, to a climbing gym, Inevitably, what happens to probably about 50% of the kids that you get up on a wall is uh, a rock climbing wall is and they're strapped in and you're belaying them. You're talking them through it. They hit 15 feet and they're like, I'm done. You're like, no, no, no. There's still another 30 feet of that wall. They're like, no, I'm done. And it took a couple of times for me to realize like, oh, well, that that right there is their intuition, intuition telling them that if they fall off that wall, they could break an ankle. They could like that. You could get hurt from that distance. The intuition is, is kicking in to deliver the message that you could get hurt. Um, your action then could go either way. You know, how you react to your intuition, um, you should still trust it. You know, if I'm in that, in that position, um, I got to trust my instinct that like, yeah, if I fall from here, it's going to hurt. But I know that I'm on a rope. I trust my belayer. They're going to keep allowing me to go higher and higher, and I can push through that. Um, I still, honestly, I still get it. Anytime I rock climb, I get 15 feet up, and there's that little, like, ding, ding, ding. Like, you could hurt yourself here, Zachary. Um, and and I just, I'll just keep going because I trust my gear, and I trust the person that's belaying me, and I trust my abilities and things like that. But it takes takes work, and so... As far as like building your intuition, it's, it's just like any other muscle or, you know, neural pathway in your brain is you just have to do it over and over again and get past it. it yeah, it takes like these, uh, these experiences to really trust it, um, where you have to see and do things that uh, blow your mind based on your instinct. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's not always, it's not always on point. Um, you know, we, I have a lot of doubt sometimes, and I've, this is something I've worked on personally is to stop doubting it so much and also stop trying to figure out exactly what it is. Because I find that if I try to break down what my instinct is saying and why and how it's happening and that kind of stuff, then I lose it. It disappears. It's one of those things, you know, where you just have to, it's one of those things where you're like, I'm just going to go for it and trust this and hopefully it doesn't lead me astray. And I find when I do that, that it doesn't, (laughs) it just doesn't, you know, it becomes a a far less, uh, far smaller failure rate. If I just, that, that thing, that mechanism that we all have, that I just trust it. I just go for it. Navigating the relationships of doubt and trust fear of failure, and the excitement of learning something new are beautifully challenging parts of the human experience. I'm always so grateful when guides show up along these paths. Hearing Zach share about these opportunities for growth 
reminded me of some special gatherings he's introduced me to over the years. So I invited him to share about these events where individuals from different communities exchange ideas and creations. One of the really great experiences that I've shared with you a couple of times um, have been the exchanging events and, and like the sharing circles. Are you talking about the trade blanket? Trade blanket, absolutely, yeah. Trade blanket. Um, I think I was introduced to the trade blanket at, I was thinking it was at the Buckeye Gathering in uh, California, which is a primitive skills gathering that happens, ooh, I don't know, you'll have to look up when that is. Summer, you know, end of summer, I think, is when a lot of the gatherings happen out there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great, and the energy around it, and this is a big one, too. The first one I, I went and saw was like, 60 people, something like that. And it was just like huge. And um, <clears throat> uh, the story, kind of like the, the lineage of it that I understand was uh, trade blankets started happening when, you know, there were at, at some time there were uh, like 500 different uh, indigenous languages in, in North America alone. And, and so all the tribes and the settlers they wanted to trade goods, but nobody spoke each other's languages. So uh, what they would do is they would lay down a blanket. And this is kind of how I do it when I do it with friends is you lay down a blanket and um, you, one person puts an item that they want to trade on the blanket and everybody puts what they would trade for that item also on the blanket. And then the original person gets to choose a trade and, um, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's great, you know, and, and you really kind of try to figure out, well, you know, if there's an item that you really want, you really try to figure out what that person wants in exchange. And, uh, when there's a trade, everybody like applauds and they shake hands. It's just like really feel good. Plus you get a bunch of new stuff and you get rid of the stuff that you weren't using. Um, so yeah, I usually show up with a bunch of, uh, weird, uh, nature items like, skins and stones and sticks and try to get people really excited about it. It always felt like opportunities, like you said, to kind of like recycle mm -hmm. things through yeah. and, and like give something that perhaps has grown stagnant in your care, like new life somewhere else. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about it, you know, it, a, it eliminates the need for money, you know, it gets the dollar out of there and it creates a new, different type of exchange. Um, but you also get like the story behind the items, you know? Um, and especially if it's a handmade thing, you know, <clears throat> so yeah, you've been to them, but like the first 20 or 30 minutes, I usually make everybody be totally silent, you know? So it's like traditionally <laughs> nobody understood what each other were, were saying. So everybody's got to be quiet, you know, and you have to like act out what your item is. And so you get like, you get, you know, you get the story not only of what the item is and how it was made and all that, but you also get to see your friend act like an idiot and, and do a little song and dance, like trying to get, uh, you know, cooler items and things like that. So it's just so much more of a story. You're not just buying, going to the store and like giving somebody 50 bucks for like a leather wallet. It's like, no, that wallet, I made that wallet. And I didn't just make it from leather. I made the leather. You know, I found that animal on this road. I picked it up in the middle of the night 
And uh, I skinned it and, you know, it was fresh enough. I ate some of it. I gave it to my friends, the process of the high tech, you know, it's just like more of a story. It just gives it character. It just give, put, you put yourself in it. You're like, that's a piece of me. That's not just a, a piece of leather that I bought and made something out of or a piece of leather that somebody else made. You got to see the process, you know, <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, especially if you like, if you, uh, are, uh, especially if you eat meat. And I know you and I have had this conversation about, um, you know, the process of, of, you know, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian unless I eat uh, meat that I have been a part of the process. Uh, and I think that's really important, you know, especially with a living thing. And, you know, I try to do it with the, the plants that I harvest as well, but it's totally different if it's a, if it's an animal, especially if you have to kill it, man, it's intense. Um, but you have that experience and you have that story and that, that story is forever in that item. One of the things that I think a lot about is how value is created. One, one of the, the things that I, I think is the purpose of money, the way that, that we think about it now, like you know, sort of like dollar bills and, and price tags and things is to sort of very quickly establish value. If I had to go into a store, perhaps like a grocery store, mm-hmm. and, I, and it was, there was no price tags or anything, and I had to take this can up to the guy standing at the front of the store, explain to me what the value of this is. And he had to be like, well, you know, there's these guys that go out on the, on the fishing boat every, uh, you know, two mm-hmm. day and they, you know, they spend, you know, it's, it's this way to sort of eliminate the story. Yeah. It's right? so distant. The right. experience is so distant from that. And, and so because of the way that we've developed society, things are required to take place so quickly in order for like this sort of efficiency piece to be met. Um, we have lost the space to have the story of what value is. And therefore we have lost grasp of what value is yeah. um, so we don't value anything <laughs> right and, and and so and then and then money is there to comfort us all in in being able to just kind of interchange that storyless stuff mm-hmm. as a person who's functioning in you know 2020 um you know i understand the quote-unquote value of of money in the current iteration of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also aware, you know, and particularly by partaking in events like the trade blank, I'm, I'm also aware that there are other systems. Um, and I'm interested in figuring out how to weave different elements of those things into the world. Cause I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, a world before money and a world before like my, my, my desire is not to go back. My desire is to draw on some of the things that perhaps have been lost to the sort of machine of efficiency mm-hmm. and help to develop a, a, a you know, newer iteration of a, of a system that incorporates some of those ideas. What the systems could look like if we start to go back and, and weave in little bits of this and that elsewhere, uh, you know, into our current system, which is just failing so miserably. Um, and yeah, it, it does feel, it feels good to be able to have an exchange outside of money, you know, where it's like, yeah, this is, 
Uh, it's still a, an, an agreed upon value system. It's just a different type of value. You know, it's, it's more, it's a more humane value where you're, you're valuing the story. You're valuing uh, the work that your friend put into something, you know, it's just, it's more intimate. And so you really, really value it. You know, like if somebody, especially in the primitive skills world, if somebody made something, um, handmade something and, and gave it to me, like that thing is going to be cherished above a lot of other crap that I just buy from the store, you know? Um, and it's such a higher form of value, you know, when there's, when there's that, and it's still, it's still like a, it can still be universal, you know, where everybody understands that that means that it's valuable, but uh, yeah, a holistic value. Awareness of our value systems and how we interact with them on a personal and societal level are great doorways to help guide us towards enacting profound systemic change. Because awareness is a skill we can help each other practice and refine, I asked Zach to share some of his favorite techniques to expand our capacity for sensing and developing awareness. A lot of times what I'll do is when I get people out in the woods, the first thing I do, and a lot of times the first thing I do myself is a sense meditation. And, and it, it's just going through and calibrating, recalibrating our senses. And um, especially because a lot of the people that we work with are coming from New York City, just like the epicenter of overstimulation. And so, you know, your nervous system just eventually just shuts down. Um, it just can't, it can only take so much. We're very sensitive things. So what I'll do is I'll go through uh, each one of the senses. I'll have everybody sit down and close their eyes and go through each one of the senses and just experience it on its own. And so for a wide angle vision, and this is, uh, this is one that's just so important or so vi such visual creatures. And it's, it's saved my life as a cyclist in New York city many, many times. What you do is you, you find yourself a, a little, a little landscape somewhere and you stand and you take a breath and you kind of calm yourself and, and just soft focus on the landscape, kind of stare off into the distance. Don't focus on anything. And what you're trying to do is get as much of the picture as possible. And so what we'll do is we'll have people stick out their arms to the left and right, kind of like a little airplane. And you just twinkle your fingers in the peripheral of your vision and you, you draw it back, you draw your hands back. So you can't see any movement from your fingers, still looking straight ahead, uh, soft focus, taking in as much of the landscape as possible. And then you just, Slowly move your hands forward until you can just barely make out the movement of the tips of your fingers. And that's kind of like the, that's your, your range of vision. I believe to the left and right, it's about 220 degrees. Um, and then you can do it up and down too. And I believe we have about 180 degrees. Um, and so that's a lot, you know, most people are so tunnel vision all the time um, that, that those numbers, when I first read them kind of, staggering it's like 220 degrees left and right that's that's a lot of vision and so when i'm out in the woods um i try to and really just in general i try to stay in wide angle vision all the time because that's how i see um animals and birds and things like that and i'll point things out to the people i'm guiding and they're like how the hell did you see that it's like i'm just looking at the landscape soft focus all the time it's also very good for your eyes i've met um uh, uh, a guy I know uh, from the tracker school 
has been doing it for about 15 years and he, he used to wear glasses and now he doesn't. He's like, it's all wide angle vision because it, it allows your eyes to just relax, you know, just like soft focus, not, you know, grabbing onto anything, you know, it kind of like, you can kind of shoot your focus into something, you know, maybe there's a hawk or an owl up in the trees. You go check them out for a second and then go back to wide angle vision. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. And I, I'll go through with a full sense meditation. I'll go through each one of the senses individually, including intuition, including the sixth sense, you know, visions and thoughts and feelings and things like that. And then I'll have people just experience it all yeah. together. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that soft vision you know, also reminds me of, um, you know, what in yoga circles is called the Drizdi. Mm. And, and that's sort of like focusing on everything and, and nothing. Yeah, it's mindfulness, you know, it's a form of mindfulness. As a guide, I've cherished so many opportunities to practice mindfulness with groups out on the trail. Thinking about how we impact each other and the environment is something I often invite people to consider as they move mindfully along their journey. As we were winding down our conversation, I wanted to give Zach an opportunity to share some mindfulness that's been guiding him recently and perhaps offer a vista into his inner landscape to the on-guiding community. What's been guiding you recently as far as some places that are maybe bringing you out of your comfort zone that you can share with us that, that maybe we can think and feel into with you? Um, you know, maybe what's a question that you want to pose that maybe the, the hive mind and get activated on, lay it on us. So for me, I've really been working on uh, self-acceptance uh, and just understanding my nature. And, and that, you know, that's really the, the jump off point for uh, understanding the nature of other people and, and accepting other people for who they are. And it's really allowed me to have very open, honest conversations in a way that I'd never have before. So honesty is another one. So one of the things that came right through for me is this honest belief that you are like a inherently good being. Mm -hmm. When I try to do that myself, like, you know, these doubts show up, these stories, these old stories, these old patterns, they show up. Um, And for me, hearing you talk about this self-acceptance, it it reminds me of of this personal journey as well. That's like this sort of path back to just believing that I'm actually a good guy mm-hmm. you know? and, and then like being able to extend that to everybody else then as well. Right. Um, and we certainly all do fucked up things to each other. And and I do not think, or like I choose to believe there is some sort of essential goodness that isn't tarnished by that. And, and if we can, live from that goodness more often um we're going to to do better for ourselves and for our communities totally uh, can i share one quick anecdote on on that on that theme and so i was up i was here i'm here in oregon with my brother and we went and did some exploring and went up to this lake called squaw lake and we were going around it and saw this big rope swing and we're like oh obviously we got to use that rope swing we get over there and the water level, it's deep enough to use the rope swing, but it's not, uh, it's not high. Like the water level isn't high enough to reach the rope to grab the bottom of the rope swing to like bring it back to land. 
And so we're like, ah, shit, like we're stuck. We're stuck. We can't do it. And, uh, and then this guy on a paddle board <laughs> comes out of nowhere and is like, he's like, if I get it for you, will you, will you jump? Will you do it? And we're like, hell yeah, man. Absolutely. And so he like helped us. He like grabbed the rope for us and, you know, helped us get it. And we used it a couple of times and we said our goodbyes and they, he took off on his paddle board. And, you know, this is kind of like backwoods, uh, Oregon, where it gets pretty, there's a pretty conservative vibe back here. Um, and just from, from the vibe of the guy, we were kind of like, you know, I bet if we got into any uh, conversations <laughs> about anything, about the state of the world, about politics or anything like that, we probably would not get along. But we both just shared this experience of like, you know, we got to use the rope swing and he got to watch us. And we, everybody there was happy and enjoying life and enjoying the experience of life together. And it was like this really, yeah, it was like a wonderful little shared moment where if we had had any conversation beyond the rope swing, it might have turned. But um, because we were just focused on that and working together, it was, uh, it was a positive. No, but like, I, I think that that's a great story. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to put a call out there to, to communities right now, particularly in the U.S., to perhaps you know, not be willfully ignorant of the fact that there are differences that exist in, in experiences for people, but to, to also remember that core of goodness that I choose to believe is there as well. Yeah, you can disagree, but don't disrespect each other. You know, like there's a way to disagree and still show respect and not uh, create big divisions that are just going to fester and get worse and worse. Zach's call to accountability when it comes to offering mutual respect when we engage with one another is a rallying cry that I wholeheartedly affirm. I believe calls like this emanate from the guiding spirit inside of ourselves. I hope this conversation helped you hear some of your own. I appreciate you joining us for this episode of On Guiding. We'll see you around the bend. As the host of On Guiding, I'm so grateful for the time and energy that our guests and team of collaborators offer to make this vision come to life. Special thanks to our executive producer, Julia Garofalo, and to our audio engineer and co-producer, Matt Einseidler. Most of this podcast is recorded at Sattvaland, an off-grid permaculture farm and retreat center in Belize. Original music for this podcast is recorded at Pineapple Hill Studios. If you have any thoughts or ideas about this project, please contact us at onguidingpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Many thanks. Much love.